Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview uh, policymakers, journalists, entrepreneurs,、uh, all kinds of really cool people about frontier ideas and urgent issues in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao.、Uh, here today, joining me is the author of the best-selling book, The Man Who Solved the Market.、Uh, he is a special writer at Wall Street Journal.、Uh, let's、uh, welcome Mr. Gregory Zuckerman. Thanks so much for joining us today in,、uh, over the phone. Pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you guys. Awesome, and and also co-hosting the show with me is my friend Michael Senka. He is a junior as well, a math major, doing machine learning research, and he is actually in Professor Rene Carmona's a stochastic calculus class this semester. And Rene Carmona, as we will soon learn from Mr. Zuckerman, is played a very pivotal role in the early founding stage of the、uh, company. Renaissance Technology. So, thanks so much for joining me in the studio today, Michael. Thanks for having me, Tiger. Awesome, Mr. Zuckerman. I know we're kind of uh, uh, the world is kind of going crazy with the coronavirus, so we'll make this、uh, short and sweet.、So、why, why don't we jump right into it? So,、uh, yeah. in the man who solved the market, you really set out to uncover the secrets behind Jim Simon's、uh, and Renaissance Technology's unprecedented success. And I,、uh, you know, he annualized around a 66% re- return over the past 30 years or so, and it's just incredible. What inspired you to take on this project? I mean, how,、uh, would you mind giving us a quick overview about the the writing process and also some of the ideas that you set out to、uh, convey to your readers? Sure. So I've been at the Wall Street Journal 23 years, and I write a lot about investors, good, the bad, and the ugly. And、um, there's really no one with a better track record than Jim Simons and his colleagues at Renaissance Technologies, as you say, up 66% a year since 1988. But it's, it's more than that. They're the pioneers in so many things. They're pioneers when it comes to quantitative trading, which dominates Wall Street. They're pioneers when it comes to big data, which dominates society.、Um, predictive algorithms. I mean, Facebook,、um, Netflix, everything that we, we're so aware of, our day-to-day lives.、Um, these mathematical models that predict what we're going to choose, our behavior, our habits, etc. Jim Simon and his colleagues were doing all this kind of stuff in the 1980s. So. Those were among the reasons why I wanted to do it, but it's also I, I'm captivated by a, a theme of outsiders who get it right when the experts get it wrong, and all my books are related in some ways to that theme. I wrote a book called The Greatest Trade Ever, which is about the those who anticipated a financial meltdown, and it wasn't the experts, it wasn't the banks, it wasn't the Fed, it was a bunch of outsiders. This guy named John Paulson, who's a merger expert, didn't really know anything about mortgages or, or Debt, that kind of thing.、Um, again, it wasn't Chevron, it wasn't BP, it wasn't Exxon. It was a group of、uh, older, interesting, independent guys in Oklahoma and Texas and North Dakota. So that's the theme here with this book as well. It should not have been Jim Simons and his colleagues. It should have been people who actually care about investing, care about companies, care about business. These are mathematicians and scientists who. Conquered the market, so I, I was sort of fascinated by that. Yeah, because you really、uh, kind of staged this contrast in the book that quantitative finance is really not a, like anything like fundamental investing or you know the the kind of the value investing that we kind of、uh, were traditionally、uh, familiar with. So, so would you mind just giving us a quick overview what what you think quantitative finance is and, and what's so key to、uh, Jim Simon's way of solving the market? Sure. So for years, up until I don't know a decade or so ago, the thought process, the the, the dominant、uh, consensus wisdom on, on in the investing world is that、uh, well, you had two chains of thought. You had people who said, well, you can't predict the future. You know, on university campuses, most professors would say, 
uh, the market is that would subscribe to the random walk where it's so efficient you can't really predict the next piece of news so you can't predict where things are going and then you had other people sort of the warren buffett approach where if you talk to companies if you look at financial reports you can use your instinct and intuition and figure out where things are going and that was sort of dominant on wall street itself and jim simons and his colleagues took a whole different approach they said, well, we're not going to try to use our intuition and our judgment. We're scientists. We're mathematicians. We're going to look for order, some sort of structure below the surface. Um, everyone else thinks the market is chaotic as it is. And we're going to say, nah, yeah, there's a lot of chaos, and, and it's hard to anticipate and predict it all. But there are some patterns that we can pick out. We can identify some patterns. And that's the idea behind it. It's also the thesis is that, We've all learned the behavioral economics, mistakes that we all make, greed, fear, um, all the stuff Kahneman and others have written about, Thaler, et cetera. And Jim Simons and his colleagues weren't necessarily believers in behavioral economics, but in some ways I, I do think they sensed that individuals make mistakes when they do investing uh, using their intuition and their judgment and better to rely on systems, better rely on, on structure and rules, a rules-based system, a systematic, and that's sort of the dominant approach now on Wall Street, everyone's trying to be a systematic investor or a systematic trader, and they are the pioneers, these people I wrote about in my book. Yeah, it's really incredible to hear about all of this. Um, the the mathematical side of the finance world that was rising, but besides the material of the book itself, it's insanely interesting uh, the process you went through to write the book. In order to write this book, you needed to extract information from some of the most secretive people on Wall Street. So I'm curious how how you went about doing this exactly, and if it was uh, very difficult for you to gather this kind of research you needed to write the book. Yeah, it was it was the hardest thing I ever did in my life, to be frank with you. I'm still sort of recovering. Um, this, these guys are the most secretive group of investors Wall Street's ever seen. They signed these 30-page NDAs. Simons, when I approached him, wanted to talk to me. I started making appointments and meetings with his rivals, with other people in the industry, other quants, as it were. And the night before, I'd get a call, oh, Greg, sorry, we can't meet with you. Why? Well, Jim asked not to. Well, why do you care what Jim Simon says? He's your competitor. N no, you don't understand. It's Jim Simon. He's sort of like a mafia don, or at least they give him that kind of respect where no one wants to upset Jim Simon. So I, I was up against all that. Um, and then, you know what it is? It, I think it's a good stories want to come out. People who work there realize they did something remarkable. They have beaten the market, and they're very unlikely group of people to have done so. Again, there are people at this firm that aren't even capitalists. They're, they're, they're not sure. They're libertarians, maybe even socialists, some of them. And some of them are, are right-leaning. You have a whole mix of people. Most of them don't even care about investing in, in, in business. A lot of them, their own spouses invest for the family. So and yet yeah. they're the ones who, who beat the market. So I think people who work there, on the one hand, they knew they weren't supposed to talk to me. On the other hand, they realized they'd gone through something remarkable. They wanted to share the experience. And eventually I got Jim to speak. Um, I kind of showed him I'm serious about the project, showed him I was uh, not going away, I think. And um, I was grateful to have had some time to spend with him. Yeah, I, I just couldn't imagine how you, you know, wrote an entire book based on th this kind of difficult process because we actually had a Pete Muller, the founder of PDD Partners. I mean, he wrote him yeah. on the book as well. So we had him on the podcast uh, a couple months ago uh, and we asked him all about his music journey. There was zero question about finance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, we prepared a bunch of them. One. He's another one. I think I had a meeting with him. And, oh, no, Jim asked me not to. Well, Pete Miller is a billionaire in his own right. Why, why, why does he care that Jim Simons wants him or doesn't want him yeah. to fight? They do. These people do. Um, yeah, Pete Miller actually has a, has a similar approach to Simons. But, right, he, he will never talk about it. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sort of surprised myself by God as much as I did. And, and great one. And, um uh, I, I, I went through a lot to get there. So it, 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 was, it was a painful journey, but I, I, hopefully the reader will agree that it was worth it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I certainly agree it was worth it. Um, Jim, Jim Simons and uh, Renaissance are probably not super happy, though, I think, as we're talking with the publishing of the book. And you mentioned the preface that Simons even personally asked you not to publish it. Uh, does this ever scare you to write such revealing stories about some of the most powerful people in Wall Street, or is it more of an empowering notion? It doesn't scare me. It scares my wife. She gets all nervous when people are upset at me, but um, I'm not asking <laughs> really. I'm just out to uh, tell the truth and be balanced and fair, and I, I don't necessarily want to be popular. I don't want to be unpopular either. I just want to try to do my job and, and, and tell the story as I believe it happens, you know, everyone's got a different perspective and um, those who went through it, uh, everyone's got a different side to every story. So, you know, I do have to say, Jim, yes, on the one hand, he did ask me not to write the book. Even a few months before it came out, I was like, uh, I just had the printer and it's a little too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he didn't really want me to write it. And um, But I have to give him a lot of credit. He really was very helpful about his early period of his life when he was a um, when they, an acclaimed mathematician, he broke code for the government. Um, in recent years, he's at the forefront of all kinds of interesting research and basic science and other kind of areas. So, um, on the one hand, he, he, yes, he, he um, was reluctant to speak, and I uh, appreciate that fact. But he also was, was quite cooperative in a lot of other ways. So I have to appreciate that. So, what's the most interesting thing or surprising thing that you kind of really learned about Jim Simons and, and Rentec? throughout this process? How did your perception of them change and evolve? I guess maybe the fact that they weren't always quants. So you think of them as, yes, 66% a year, and they are the preeminent quantitative investors. He is an acclaimed mathematician. He's one of the greatest geometers of the past 50, 100 years. And yet, they spent 12 years, from 1978 until uh, 1990, just figuring out whether quant uh, investing is the right approach. Because for a while, Simons went did sort of traditional investing using, you know, by the seat of his pants, buying gold, buying silver, that kind of stuff. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. You would think that a guy like Simons and his colleagues would only be quant investors, but that's not the case. And, and also, even in past years, you know, it's almost like there's a lesson that um, it's not easy to be a quant. You have to sort of fight the the um, instinct to kind of play with the models and get involved. And, you know, you can think broadly, you know, we all talk about automated driving and all that kind of stuff. Just turning decisions over to machines is scary um, for me, for somebody like me, you know, a layman, but it was also for Simon. And, um, you know, you mentioned Rene Carmona, who, who made real interesting um, uh, contributions at Renaissance, partly because he helped them um, include a machine learning uh, approach to investing. But, Simons, again, one of the most acclaimed mathematicians, he, he wasn't really comfortable with it. He was like, oh, this is a black box. I'm not so sure we should be doing this. So, yeah, if it's hard for Jim Simons to be a quant and, and his colleagues, then all the more so it's hard for all the rest of us, or people like me, I don't know about you guys, people like me to turn decisions over to machines. 
Yeah, no, it's this character study of Jim Simons that you do through the book is very interesting. And it led to, a, at least for me, a very natural question of why do you why do you think Jim Simons won out in the end? I mean, he had a pretty long track record of being behind the crowd. For instance, Citadel was unquestionably more successful than Rentec for a while. But then obviously, ultimately, a sudden and unmistakable surge uh, put Simons put Simons at the top where he remains today. Do you think that there's something fundamentally particular about Jim Simons that allowed him to do this? Or was it more due to a long stroke of luck? I can give you a theory. I don't know if it's accurate enough, but I, I think he is a really unique person in that he can do the math. He's a quant. He's, again, had hit some of his math breakthroughs, still have influence today in different areas, uh, mathematics, certainly physics. But he also understands people. He's a people person which is sort of extraordinary. There aren't many people in that world. I mean, not to be cliched or, or even insulting, but, you know, the joke about mathematicians is an outgoing mathematician is one who stares at your shoes during a conversation rather than his or her own, uh, <laughs> own shoes. So, but Simon isn't like that. He's a funny guy. He's outgoing. He's mischievous. He drinks. He smokes. He smokes like a chimney still. So he, he actually... Um, as a result, my point being, he actually manages really well. So I went into this thinking it was a trading book or an investing book to some extent, but it's just as much a management book. He's great at recruiting. He's great at motivating people. He has created this fascinating um, um, organization within um, Renaissance. Renaissance is very collegial, and there are very few firms like it where um, they work together really well. They aren't silos like in most firms. And it's really unique. So um, I, my thesis is that Simons, as a result, can do both. And he's developed a really unique, unique organization where they recruit the best talent. They work together better than other people. They recruit better. Um, and, and they've had some, some breakthroughs, which they've protected, and protected internally. But I do have to say also that people internally aren't sure themselves why they're the ones who continue to do the, well in the market. I mean, even this year, they've, they're off. Lose medallions up. The others aren't. But uh, even in this crazy year, Medallion has done well. So they themselves, when you ask them, you push them, they're not 100% sure why they're so much better than everybody else. I think the the one thing that's really struck me the, the most is that in the process of them trying to solve the market, I mean, their road was filled with personal tragedy, stress, instability, misery. Like, you know, Jim Simons personally lost two sons. Um, yeah. and, and you wrote about how he just c- couldn't really cope with the second time, which is, I mean, I can't even imagine the first time. So uh, yeah. do, do you see a correlation between quant firm success with their mental toughness or, or mental health? I, I don't know, because it, it sounded like to, to what you just said to me that, you know, it's not just about gathering 30 of the most brilliant mathematicians in the world and you guys can just do this. It, it, they're really the pioneers and, and the, the mental stress and toughness they had was just incredible. Yeah, listen, I hate that to measure his mental toughness versus somebody else's. Other people have gone through things in their lives and challenges. I, but I do have to acknowledge that Simon ha- has unique self-confidence. And um, his ability to deal with adversity, I mean, part of the reason I write these books, frankly, is to learn from people. It's not just to tell a story, but I'm selfish in a lot of ways. And I like to learn from, from people who have accomplished a lot in life. And I, I get to spend, go out to drive out to Princeton and spend a few hours with um, mathematicians who work with Simons in the 70s who are fascinating. We talk about life, we talk about religion, all the things that I'm personally interested in. So I'm really selfish. So, But I do have to say that I, I 
yes, Simonson is someone we can all learn from in some ways. We can take some of his characteristics, some um, his ability to deal with adversity. Like you said, he lost two children tragically. Uh, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, there's also a, a lesson there. Like, you know, everything he's made $23 billion based on his ability to predict the future. He couldn't even, and, he, and in his own life, he was, he was shocked left and, left and right um, over and over again by, by, by what happened in his life. But yes, if you, if, 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 I agree with you that Simon's had this, um, and it's true of all of the kind of people I've written about in my career who had breakthroughs and, and huge accomplishments. They have the ability to ignore the experts and to have this self-confidence even when it's not working. So Simon's uh, and his team couldn't figure out equity trading for years and years and years. They were doing well with bonds and commodities and futures, but they stocks they just couldn't figure out. And instead of giving up, like, I don't know, I probably, I probably mo- would have moved on. And frankly, anybody with outside clients probably would have. He didn't have too many. It was mostly his money, so that helped. But most people would have moved on. But yes, Simon, uh, for whatever reason, has this uh, self-confidence innate self-confidence that I would say we could all learn from, but I'm not sure we, we can develop it, frankly, if sort of you're, you're born with it or not. Yeah, because you said that he ignored the experts, right? I mean, and... and yeah, throughout... people dismiss this approach. People dismiss quantitative trading, but we're talking about the early, like, let's say, 1990s. From 1990 to 1993 or so, he tried raising money. He didn't really raised that much money. No one really bought into what he was doing. Now, again, quantitative dominates Wall Street, but it was a different era back then. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But it just so throughout your journalistic journey, as you you said, you've always kind of done profiles on people, done some of those investigative work that try to pull different ideas together and really present a very new narrative to your readers, uh, which is extremely impressive. But as you go through this journey. Uh, do you sense a pattern in terms of the people that you interviewed? You know, as you said, those are incredible people with some kind of traits that you can uh, conclude, but you're not really sure you can extrapolate that and uh, copy it on anyone else. Yeah, so the danger with my work is that I write about the winner. So it's a self-selecting group. So I can outline a few characteristics and traits that are common in all of them. And I I did a little bit I can reiterate, but the danger is, well, okay, Greg, you've written about, you know, a dozen people that have outsmarted the world, and here's why. But, you know, for every one that I write about, there's maybe a hundred that's similar who blew it, who, 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 you know, didn't succeed. So that is the danger. But um, I, I guess what I've seen time and time again is the people I've written about have the ability to ignore the conventional wisdom and, and ignore consensus and somehow have this belief and faith in themselves. Now, you could say, again, I'm sure there are people um, who ignore the experts and failed miserably over the years, but those that, that I've written about have been able to do that and um, have, have persevered and have this kind of tenacity that I admire, and I think readers can learn, can learn from that as well. Um, so, again, there was always a conventional wisdom that um, computer trading, quantitative finance, is kind of voodoo stuff. It's black box, and that these guys ignored it. In my earlier books, you know, the conventional wisdom is that the United States is running out of oil and gas. There's no way to find too much uh, oil and gas in America. Everybody was offshore in Africa and Asia. All the big companies, Exxon, all these guys, and yet there are some stubborn, iconoclastic, um, odd, sometimes colorful individuals who ignored the conventional wisdom. And uh, yeah, again, I, I write about that a lot, but. Um, 
that ability to ignore the conventional wisdom is pretty impressive to me. So on that note, let's pivot back towards this question of if math can really beat the market. In 2015, Two Sigma co-founder David Siegel once said, eventually the time will come that no human investor, investment manager will be able to beat the computer. Do you think this is true? Uh, has this already come to pass? There are obviously, you know, this coronavirus epidemic right now tends to show that there are maybe some events that maybe a computer or math will never be able to prove. But I'm curious on your thoughts of this question of will a computer ever be able to beat the human investor in this game? So quantitative investors have done better than traditional investors over the past good decade or so. But you don't want to overstate their success. They're not dominating the market. There are many that have underperformed. So I do, I, I do share the view that it's really, really hard for traditional investors using fundamental analysis and old school methods to beat the market. It's much more efficient than it used to be. It's becoming more efficient. Um, it's hard to digest information that comes faster than ever. There's more data that needs to be processed. There aren't the um, advantages that traditional investors used to have. Information advantage was one of them be it legal or not legal, you'd get a tip. Uh, it could be legal, it could be not legal from a company, from an analyst. You don't do that anymore. You can't just read a financial report and be really smart and look on page 36 and, ah, there's some figure there that people aren't aware of. That just doesn't happen anymore. Everything's digested by computers much more quickly. So you're uh, at a competitive disadvantage if you're a traditional investor. But I do think that there's some man plus machine that is capable of keeping up with the quants or even beating the quants. And there's some firms that are trying to embrace that approach where you're aided by the machine. And, and frankly, Renaissance considers itself to some extent like that too. I mean, keep in mind that they do machine learning and there are systems that they um, embrace that um, uh, their trades they embrace that are solely driven by their computers, not by individuals. But by the same token, they also are humans putting together the algorithms. And they look at themselves as, a, uh, as humans informing the systems, informing, informing the computers, as opposed to computers being informed by humans. I'm, I'm sorry, humans being informed by computers. They don't think that the latter works, where it's a traditional approach, and then you bring in some computer science, and you allow that to help the individuals. They think the other way is much better, where the humans help the computers do a better job, build the algorithm, keep an eye on things, risk management and such. So I do think man plus machine can be machine, uh, but I do think man alone uh, has tremendous uh, disadvantages in today's market. Uh, yeah, that's a, a perspective I kind of personally never really thought of. I mean, uh, you know, the ride with the rise of quantum mentals and everything, you you'd really think it's uh, it's about uh, computers helping the humans. But yeah, it's it's a brilliant point that you said it's about humans helping the computers. Yeah, uh, I I know you have to go soon, so I just want to quickly wrap up the interview with like two questions. The first one is uh, the, about the social impact of quant finance. Um, we asked a lot of normative-related questions, uh, more ethical framework-related questions on this show. So, you know, there's a former Renaissance executive who said that, you know, one could argue that hedge funds are just a game in which rich people play around with each other, doesn't seem to do the world much good. And, you know, and all those big names in quant finance are world-class mathematicians and computer scientists. And, you know, the, the quant firms are recruiting out of those top STEM institutions. So one could certainly make the argument that by going to finance and just playing with marketing efficiencies, you are literally 
really wasting talents that could have really contributed to the advancement of human knowledge. So I don't know. What do you think is the ultimate impact of so of, of quant finance? Do do you uh, see the point of its existence besides making money? So, it's a great question. I struggle with it. I can give you a good argument on both sides. It's not going to help you too much. But um, I listen when I go and meet with these people. In the back of my mind, I'm like, Why, how does that help society that you're doing such a great job building trading models when you're a, a brilliant mathematician, a scientist? I mean, look at this virus that's, that's sweeping the world. You don't think these guys, their talents should be better applied, could be better applied, trying to come up with a cure, trying to come up with some data that, that helps in, in that regard. There are all kinds of um, ways that they could be helping. Um, so part of me is... Um, discouraged that so many people, so much of our best talent is being drawn to terms like Renaissance and quantitative finance broadly. The, the counter-argument is someone at Renaissance will say, well, A, we're not drawing that much talent from the rest of the world. It's, it's marginal amount of talent. We're not really having that much of an impact. And B, they make so much money that they often can do really good things with it. So if you look at the Simons Foundation, Jim Simons has set up a foundation. They are hiring some of the best and brightest uh, in the world, mathematicians, but also scientists and doctors and, and, and others to, to do really important things like come up with cures for cancer, or these treatments for cancer, I'm sorry, for autism, I apologize, for autism. Um, they're, they're trying to understand the origins of life. They're trying to do some really important work and that, that's uh, money that's been well spent, I would, I would, I would argue. So, um, and, and, and frankly, they also do other kinds of really good things sometimes with their money, nonprofits, hospitals abroad they make a lot of money and they often do good things with it but you also have to keep in mind that they don't always do um things that maybe are, are all that beneficial to society robert mercer for example he owns yeah. breitbart the, uh, the uh you know right-wing conservative uh publication you know some some can argue that the role he played putting uh trump in in in, in uh in the oval office and brexit uh, some would argue and that may not be all that helpful to society. I don't want to take a position. I work at the Wall Street Journal. I have no opinions of my own, of course. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's open for debate. I think it's really important debate to have, though. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I know you have to go soon, so I want to just ask you one last question. I, I got five minutes. I, I got five minutes. It's fine. Okay, okay. Uh, so, sounds great. Because uh, one question I was, I was really curious, as you, you know, <laughs> talk to those people and, and go through this interview process, do you ever feel like you're bo- breaking a, a moral code within the industry? I, I, I don't know. It almost seems to me, you know, when you talked about how, you know, Pete Muller was the, kind of like the same, even though he's a billionaire, he wouldn't want to talk about other people. It seemed that, you know, in the industry, there's a consensus that nobody w- would talk about it. So, you know, going in from an outsider perspective, did you ever feel like uh, you were, quote unquote, a whistleblower or something that was endangering the, the industry somehow? Or You know what? These guys take themselves so seriously. I mean, we've got... <laughs> We've got a virus that's sweeping the world. We've got real problems in this world. Um, global warming. You've got health and, and real real issues. And yes, you are right. They all treat the stuff like it's state secrets. They're, they're formulas for making you know a penny um, on a stock in and out before anybody else. They act like this is like um, a secret formula, secret sauce that, God forbid, you know, no no one should ever find out. And, and, and I can't believe you're actually talking to Greg Zuckerman about what 
come on, guys. This is trading and investing. And I, and I get, <laughs> I get it. You know, business secrets. You no, know, I wouldn't want to share. You know, also journal secrets if if there's something secretive. And I, I knew there's something to be said for that. But they take themselves so seriously. My God. Whereas you know, somebody who is actually trying to cure cancer, I don't think they take themselves as seriously as as these quants do. Yeah. So. Another question I wanted to ask you is just because if you think about the success of their model, you know, you said they talk, take themselves so seriously, uh, and then they're really kind of playing the numbers game and coming up with new mathematical models and stuff. But as the markets become more efficient, wouldn't it sort of put them out of business in the sense that they couldn't really take more advantage of the the, the high efficient the inefficiencies of the market and also hurt the long term prospect of of this industry? It, it, it should be, yeah. And I heard. Peter Brown is the CEO of, of Renaissance today. He speak recently. Um, I don't think he was thrilled that I was there, but I uh, went to hear him nonetheless. Uh, it was a public venue, but anyway, someone invited me. Uh, and yeah, he talked about how the market is getting more efficient and quant uh, returns should come down. Uh, as a result, we keep waiting for Renaissance's <laughs> results to come down. They haven't, um, even, like I said earlier, even to this day, this year. So it's pretty, pretty remarkable. But yeah, um, I yeah, the market is becoming more efficient, and the returns of quant investors should come down over time. So I hate to ask for you to speak for someone else, but in your view, what what do you think is their their ultimate vision? What do you think they want to do as an end goal for all of this? Oh, make a lot of money. That's really? That, like, Th- that's the yeah, that... yeah. Let's not pretend otherwise. That was the thing that kind of caught me by surprise. Also about Simon's. He's an academic, um, very well-respected academic mathematician, but he really loves money. And he'll admit that. He's got no shame whatsoever uh, talking about that. So these guys like to make a lot of money. They're they're a fascinating combination. Listen, I'm a big believer in in gray characters. A lot of people read these books and they come away. A lot of my my books, they say, Greg, I I don't know if I like the characters or, or don't like the characters. And I think that's great because... I think life's about the gray, and most people are kind of gray. And yeah, I, I don't think they, they should. I don't think they. Sh- I'm not saying they should feel shame in terms of 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 whether they should, you know, feel bad about making a lot of money. Good for them. As long as they're doing good things with it, they're not hurting people. They're not hurting others. They're contributing to society. Good for them. But um, yeah, let's not let's not pretend otherwise. You know, R- really Robert could be focusing on other things in his life, but. He's trying to make more money, and and they don't need the money either. Let's 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 be clear you don't about think, that too. You don't think it's really uh, at one point it becomes uh, intellectual challenges? You know, for Jim yeah. Simons, who's already made it, for him maybe it's just about oh, I want to solve the, na- the next math problem. That's what Pete Muller said to me. He's like, I really love yeah. solving math problems. You know, I think there's a big element to that too. Yes, um, they um, are curious people. They like challenges. They're math people, as you say. They like puzzles. So that is a big part of it. Um, would they be doing this if they weren't getting paid well? No. So let's not let's m- make let's be clear about this too. Um, <laughs> Necessary, but not people, sufficient, or things like yeah, that. Yeah, people are not doing this as a nonprofit. So I think it, it's hand in hand. There's a it makes it makes it fun. It makes it enjoyable that it's a puzzle and it's an intellectual challenge. Yes, but that patina of like of uh, of high like a higher um, um, purpose kind of thing. You really saw through them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just let's be honest. And when they don't do well, when they when they're down, they're depressed over there. So <laughs> it, 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 you know, it, it's not because they haven't solved the problem. They're not making as much money. And, and I don't think 
I, I don't think they go there to make to get rich. But once they're there, they want to get rich. So that's how they recruit them. I talk about the, the challenges and, oh, and the blood the go down. In. Yeah, yeah one, and like anybody else, they're humans. They're humans like anybody else. I think you and I too. If we were in that circumstance, I'm not above it either. If I work there and you make a ton of money one year, I don't think anybody's quitting after one year because they're <laughs> they're wealthy. You want to make be even wealthier last year. You know what's funny? Like I, I've worked on Wall, I've written about Wall Street a long time. The fights on Wall Street about pay are usually after really good years, not bad years. You would think it'd be mm. bad years when your pay is down. It's the good years when, oh, I did so well, I should be getting more than her or more, or more than him. Mm. And you start getting jealous and envious and mm -hmm. the fights occur. So it, it becomes, you're part of an environment. You, it's an ecosystem where money becomes important. You start focusing on the money. And again, I don't mean, I'm a capitalist. I work at the Wall Street Journal. I think capitalism is the best system. But let's not <laughs> pretend otherwise. They're trying to, they're, they're trying to, do some good for the world with their money. They do they, they, they help people. And I, and I follow them and they're very charitable. A lot of people want Wall Street charitable. Again, it is all good about the grades. It's not like black and white. Everyone tries to make it, you know, the Bernie's in the world and the progressives. These are evil Wall Street. They brought down the financial system in 2008. I don't know. These are honest working people. Most of them bought and got sick on their own, um, on, on their own product, as it were, when it comes to 2008, I don't think I don't believe in pointing the finger and saying Wall Street and the, the banks. The banks were so evil; they they brought down the world. They they got they brought down themselves too. They lost a lot of money and, and they made mistakes. So these are humans trying to to feed their kids and 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 get some retirement going. They're very realistic, and they still have the the emotions and the human nature is yeah. getting brought out, just like the rest of us. Even though they're working with math problems every day, that 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 totally makes sense. Uh, so, so, rest of us, half your audience is going to be working over there someday. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> Michael. My, my, if Michael doesn't fail, you're, Professor, you're writing a resume over there after this after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I wanted to. I mean, before I roast Michael about how he's gonna fail Professor Carmona's class and never get to Wall Street, I, I, I want to ask you uh, the, the last question because the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. We ask you know all of our guests at the end, what's the punchline here? What, what do you think it really is for you? I'll tell you what the punchline is. The punchline is systems over stories. And what do I mean by that? I mean the one lesson that I learned from this experience, the Renaissance experience is that um, we in society, we non-quants, and, and I took like pre-cal, so I was like the highest I ever got in math, and I had to <laughs> uh, break my teeth understanding, you know, hidden Markov models and stochastic differential equations, stuff that I'm sure you guys, basic to you, but I had to learn all that stuff. But I've become a big believer in the quantitative approach or, or looking for systems, or at least rules-based, and that's what Renaissance does. Everything is, a, is using the scientific approach. Um, and and you see it in other industries too. So you know, why, why, um, um, surgeons and pilots—they've got checklists today. A few years ago, they didn't, but now they even for basic stuff. Did you wash your hands before surgery? Things like that. And the con and, and if you look at the, the best businesses today, the Ten Cents and Netflix and others—they're all built on um, these dynamic models. Whereas the contrast is in the White House or you know the halls of government, Congress and maybe even the Fed to some extent, they're still winging it. They're using intuition and judgment and gut instinct, and they're proud of it. Oh, yeah, they, they love it. They're proud of it. They're using their gut instinct, and it's, scary, and it's really scary to me, as opposed to using data and um, the scientific method. And to the extent one can, I think it's important. You can't do it all the time, and we all make uh, use our instincts to some extent. But um, 
time and time again, if you look at the worst, the biggest mistakes of the last few years when it comes to investing, it's like Theranos and WeWork, um, those kind of companies, Valiant, where sophisticated investors got carried away with the story and with management. And they thought, oh, yeah, well, this management, I believe in them. And they get carried away, whereas the people at Renaissance, they don't even know the names of the companies they're trading because they don't want – and part of it is because they don't want to get carried away with the, with the that approach. So I think for all of us, at least for me, that's what I took from the Renaissance experience, the importance to, to the extent one can of using the scientific method and systems in a rules-based approach, data-oriented um, and, and I can talk about it because he dropped out of the race, but like a Mike Bloomberg, he's all about data. So I'm not endorsing him in any way. I'm not sure he would have been a great or a bad president, but um, he's all, as a politician, he's all about data. Every decision is based on data, mm. whereas, uh, whereas other people, they're starting to winging it in intuition, and they're not, they're not having a sophisticated approach to decision-making. So that's what I took from it. I think the re- real revolution is that things will just become more quant in that sense like even you know traditional value investors or traditional venture capitalists they will focus more on data in the future as, as this revolution you know starts to unfold yeah i think so and you have to listen everybody in wall street has to have some data some programming some background where you're at least comfortable with those concepts you got to just you know a little python uh, i don't care who you are so things have really remarkably uh, changed just in a few years in in, in this industry and in most industries but Again, some of the most important decisions that affect us all uh, are, aren't using data, aren't using this, this more sophisticated approach. So that kind of scares me. Well, Mr. Zuckerman, thank you so much for telling us uh, uh, so many fascinating insights from yours. I mean, it's it's a wonderful read, and I highly encourage everybody else to buy it on Amazon, The Man Who Solved the Market. Uh, again, thanks so much for joining me today, Mr. Zuckerman. Sure, and I would encourage people, if they want to, after they've read the book or um, want to converse with me, feel free to email me, reach out to me on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. Um, I'd love to stay in touch, especially with young people, hear what they have to think. And um, sometimes, you know, my best story ideas, book ideas come from young people on the cutting edge of what's what's coming. So I need to be aware of that. Um, I'm always learning as a journalist. So I would encourage people to reach out. Thank you so much, Mr. Zuckerman. I mean, the, the work you're doing is absolutely fascinating. And I think Michael and I both very much look up to you and the way how you reason through those things and deliver through those things as we uh, go through our career decisions and, and think about the purpose of finance and math and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sure, sure. And listen, again, I, just to reiterate, um, there's nothing necessarily noble about finance, but what people do with the money they make can be noble and often is. So, um, yeah, keep doing what you do and pursue what you want to do and do some good things on uh, on the side uh, as well. And uh, yeah, th- nice, nice speaking to, to both of you guys. Oh my gosh, such positive and optimistic message and really meaningful messages that we hope to tell our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sounds great, sounds great. Best of wishes to you. I hope you take care of yourself in the midst of the, all this uh, coronavirus guys. outbreak. Yep, you stay safe, guys. Thank, Thank you, you so Mr. much. Zuckerman. Awesome, Michael. What, what do you think? We just had this interview with Mr. Zuckerman. Maybe you and I can talk a little bit. I mean, you you were, yeah. as I mentioned, you were in Professor Carmona's class. So what is stoch- stochastic calculus? Yeah. So what, what even is uh, all this stuff? The the basic methodology or the reason why stochastic calculus was made was because um, if you look at physics and if you start taking maybe college physics classes and get more advanced classes, you can see that the world is modeled by differential equations. We know exactly how 
to model how things are changing the real world, and we want to use that to get some sort of mathematical model for what will happen in the future, right? We want to predict the future, and using these techniques for differential equations in physics, we can do that, which is pretty cool. So now we wanted to extend this to markets, and we introduced this idea of randomness in differential equations. So the standard way is you you put a little Brownian motion factor in when you model. Well, what your does it mean? Brownie motion is that, Brown, is that like, <laughs> a, like you cook some brownies in your mom? What's the what's the deal? If you see, if you see those classic Google images pictures of stocks that are these very jagged lines that are going up and down, um, Brownian motion is a very standard model for something like this, where you have this even game of a you know this infinitely narrow random walk that's going up and down uh, at the at the same time. But, okay, so that's that's basically yeah. The general of stochastic calculus is we want to extend differential equations to the world of randomness, and this very naturally extends to the world of finance, right? Because there's no way we can know every single little thing about what's going on in the market. So we try to model this using some sort of random variable that we tailor the best we possibly can. I think you're just confusing our, our listener more and more. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> so the word stochastic just means random in that sense. It means it's uh, there's it's a specific kind of random, but usually when you have the prefix stochastic for some sort of like a stochastic process, it's a it's a process that moves with time. And, and yes, and, and that's essentially you know what, what Mr. Zuckerman explained in the book and what uh, people like Jim Simons and the quant finance people did right. They're, they're trying to they're saying that financial markets are an inherently a random kind of process. However, the the way it might go, you can kind of predict it, but ultimately saying you, you they they try to use some model to forecast it. Is, right. Is that the idea to 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 capture the, the 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 essence of quant finance? Yeah. There's a point, and they weren't always using this stochastic calculus, magic math sort of thing. There's a point in the book where they talk about. The transition from linear regressions, things maybe you would normally see in a college-level econ class or something like that, to modeling it using these stochastic differential equations. When you know Rene Carmona started doing a bit of work for them and showing that you know maybe this is a better way to model it. And what was very interesting was now, you know, Jim Simons using linear regressions was able to understand you know why it was giving these predictions, why this stock was going up, why this one was going down, and. Now, using this stochastic model, he had no idea why it worked. It just worked, but it worked well. It worked really well. And no so, so when we talk about a black box, is that we, we genuinely don't know what is happening. You, you, you're just giving the computer an input and it gives you an output, but you genuinely don't know why it worked. Yeah, and mathematicians hate that, right? Because the whole, you know, the it's whole lifestyle of mathematicians is yes, about reasoning. proving everything. You always have access to your axioms in any possible way you need to prove everything you want. It's a very romantic idea for mathematicians to be able to prove and understand everything. So when Jim Simons was, you know, introduced this method that worked better than what he was doing, you know, he was obviously very appalled, but eventually swung over. Yeah, so I can't imagine what the process is like. It's like you try to invent a product or, or come up with a, something. You You did it. You failed. And then you brought in some new approach that you probably disagree with as a mathematician, and principally saying, uh, and it works better than it just opens up a whole new field yeah. of investing. That, that is pretty sick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think Mr. Zuckerman brought in a very interesting point about the social impact. I mean, he, you know, Jim Simons is gathering all this wealth, and he eventually, you know, keeps in a Jim Simons Foundation, uh, dedicates to research to treat autism, and and. and work in science and stuff. See, that's something I'm not so sure about finance. That is something I'm personally quite 
because I think like people make those kind of arguments all the time. You you know you oh you make those all those money and you donate all those mo- money to Africa or whatever, and mm-hmm. and that's the social good you're creating. But why not just directly do the social good? I mean, if that's what you're passionate about. So so I think for those people, I, I think it's about what you truly want, right? If if you truly want to be a mathematician who wants to make a lot of money, that's fine. If you just want to make money. Um, but but I but I wouldn't say you know the the social good part is the is a purpose. Yeah, I mean, and I can't lie as well. You know, as I've gone through mathematics here at Princeton, I coming into Princeton had no awareness at all of the financial world. And you know, Citadel to me was the college that was near my hometown, not this <laughs> giant quant firm that's been growing behind my back. But um, yeah, it's it's become a little bit alluring to me. The fact that I can do math for a lot of money. And even though, of course, if I were to go that path, I would try to use my money towards the most social good I can. I can't ignore the fact that the the money in itself is attracting me a little bit. And it's it's interesting to think how that would affect my decisions down the line. It's really absurd if you think about it, because I was uh, reading the, the book and it kind of, we, we actually kind of was about to ask this question to Mr. Zuckerman is that, there's this very stark change in Wall Street's perspective on people like Jim Simons. You know, people had, and he mentioned in our interviews that people really didn't think that when you trade with math and algorithm rather than based on market fundamentals and instincts, they didn't think that was a good approach. I mean, using mathy stuff to do things. So, you know, Jim Simons was trying to raise money. He couldn't raise the money. Um, other people, so when he failed, people just thought this thing doesn't work out. And, uh, so, so, so for me, it seems like a bunch of math nerds, right? They were, they were all just doing math for the whole time, and then suddenly they can make more money than the quote unquote the cool kids, the people who are working on the fundamentals and things like that. Um, I don't know. It's it's, it's almost like if you if you look at the Princeton graduates who go to uh, Wall Street today. You have the Princeton kids who are, you know, doing investment banking, doing the quote unquote front office job, the cool jobs, and all the back office, you know, kind of has always been, oh, you're a nerdy Asian, you're just my quant, you're like my, <laughs> so you, you, you're just, you would never see the client, you would never make the big bucks, but turns out those quote unquote nerds are just beating the markets better than all the cool people. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how psychologically that plays a part in this. Just imagine you, you don't socialize much. You've just been doing math the whole time, and now you're suddenly, you know, this big shot, the big this shot, big shot on Wall Street. You are the big shot. Whew, I don't know. Yeah, I can't lie. That would get to me. And Jim Simons, obviously, when Mr. Zuckerman said this, which also surprised me. I mean, he's good with people, good with management, and he is not just one of those nerds. And I think that definitely played a pretty, pretty big role in, in his success because I, I don't think if you can just bring in 30 of the world's top mathematicians and you can just you guys can just do it yeah um, I, I don't know do, do you know where, how you feel about all this it it's um, I mean obviously I'm always going to be in favor of the side of you know math taking over any sort of industry or domain but really why, why is that why is that no I mean the I feel what drew me to mathematics is the the punchline that we got at the end this systems over story right i'm a very big fan of the idea of breaking down any sort of system you're analyzing in the most fundamental way that you possibly can make sure you know exactly what's going on to me that's how you start you know building new things better right is when we start understanding exactly what's happening in the background 
Um, and you need that to build for the better, right? So for investing in this case, we figured out there are a lot of mathematical models that we could sort of put on this to make better predictions. And you know, once we start analyzing more exactly how these trends, why these trends are happening, um, we can use that to make better predictions. And you know, I can't exactly make a statement on whether it's good or bad once we you know, break the market or however you want to call it when math is doing better than everyone else and we can just kind of let robots do all of our investing for us. But um, that may be a conversation for another day. See, I think people tend to have this very stark, stark uh, extreme end. It's either black or white, right? So it's either the quants taking over the world, where it's all fundamental investing. So I, 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 don't, I mean, I don't think that's obviously the case. I mean, Mr. Zuckerman kind of mentioned this: is that uh, it's not that the quants are taking over the market. This, this huge amounts of capital are still very much done by fundamental investing, by value investing, by very traditional kind of approaches of looking at the market. Um, and, and a lot of a lot of quant people like fail. They don't beat the market, and I think beating the market is fundamentally, it's really tough. I was telling you that. Yeah, day. yeah, for sure. You got people like Jim Simons who basically struggled for decades. I mean, he was he didn't do this in five years or ten years. He did this over a long time. I mean, and he was already a very accomplished Princeton professor, already one of the the best uh, top echelon mathematicians in the world. And he, he tried to do this. He couldn't do it. So, oh, my God, the, the, the amount of struggles they had to go through. Um, absolutely. So I think the rise of algorithm and data would definitely sort of creep in, you know, in terms of quantum mentals. You know, I, I was learning about this with an econ PhD student on campus, you know, those quantum mentals, which is basically you would buy big data sets on, like, satellite data on, on a parking lot, things like that, right? And then based on that, you predict how the company's actually doing. So Walmart's parking hmm. lot. Based on Walmart's parking lot, you predict how much, uh, the, the, or, 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 you know, th things like that, or, or how many people switch from AT&T to Verizon, those kind of very granular data. But when you get a huge data set and you try to crunch them, you can make traditional invest investing based on those quant uh, uh, sort of aids, uh, um, which which is very very interesting. So I, I think it's going to be a, a mixture of both and uh, passive investing. Everything a lot of things will be automated, but you, you will still have just huge amount of. It would just be a mixture. Yeah. Uh, no. And I think, as we were briefly mentioning during the interview, this whole COVID nineteen situation, right, is you know it's it's something that no AI today would have been able to take advantage of or fix or anything like that. There's still going to be some things for a very long time. We're still we're still not there for a takeover. The Terminator didn't really do the best in the world as far as imagery for robots <laughs> and AI in general. But yeah, no, it's it's still very much at a point where we're using these mathematical tools to assist us, which is a much brighter imagery in my opinion. I mean, we, we kind of touched on the, the, the whole dynamic between quant and algorithms and and you know fundamental approach more traditional approaches on this podcast we we had finance people coming in to talk about some of those trends we had Pete Muller who I mean who is literally the guy who runs all this uh you know Joyce Chang who is the global chair of research for JP Morgan um we had Torsten Slock who was the Deutsche Bank's chief economist and and Dr. Slock actually mentioned very something very interesting is that you, you know this algo-driven, risk parity driven those kind of flash sales um, that 
we're very much driven by algorithm, done by algorithms that, that immediately detects a blip in the market and also starts selling and everybody else follows suit and sells things. I mean, that's a pretty big market risk. They're not really making the market, quote-unquote, more efficient. They're, they're, they're making it more dangerous. It's a pretty big market risk because it's not a sale driven by the fundamentals. Um, it, it's a sale driven by algorithmic fear. Then um, humans probably wouldn't have done it. So things like that, uh, I don't know if it's actually making the market a better place. So I, I would love to continue those kind of conversations and, and questioning down the road. And I, I'm, I'm sorry that we didn't really get to it with Mr. Zuckerman today is that, you know, when they say they're the market maker, when they say they are the ones providing liquidity to the market, are they actually doing that? I, I'm not sure, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of at least... I feel like I can make a, a relation back to the the world of software engineering to where there's, you know, cybersecurity is always going to be a big field, right? We're never going to, at least in the foreseeable future, make the perfect system or perfect server that there's no way anyone can break or hack into it. Like for the target breach is a good example for a while ago where I think they got through from the air conditioning company or something like that. Something no one would have been able to predict before. but. I feel like the same in general goes for if we start trying to rely more on these automated systems for trading and our markets on trading, right? Is that even though we think that whatever mathematical system uh, we put on it is the best and right, it's math, it can't be wrong, there's going to be some inherent flaw in it that no one is seeing at the time. And obviously, when those flaws break, if they allow them break at the same time, it can be pretty catastrophic. So I, I think that's a fair insight to say that we're always going to have this sort of instability. And we're really not going to see how it comes, which is the scary part of it. Uh, so what are you currently learning in Professor Carmona's uh, class? What's, uh, what is on the frontier of, I know you do machine learning research in math and things like that. What, what's on people's mind these days? How are you guys revolutionizing this thing? For Well, the class itself is it's a um, more of an intro fundamentals to these things. So it's it's giving a lot of these different, you know, stochastic equations and saying, you know, some people are using this to model stocks and maybe finding Simpson's sex. Obviously, the big one is the Black-Scholes equation, which is a stochastic differential equation in itself. But yeah, a lot of the class at this point, we spent the first bit kind of developing the theory and fundamentals for, you know, why this very weird integral using random variables works. And then just go into showing a bunch of equations and saying, yeah, some people are trying to fit this and seeing how it works. There's never like a, this is the correct way to model a stock sort of equation. It's just, you know, there's some theory behind, you know, if you have this stock where you have some drift or something like that where it makes sense to model it in this way. But yeah, there's never any fundamental, this is the correct way to model. It's um, a lot of different equations with a lot of different reasonings. But. At least for my perception right now, it's I am a lowly undergraduate halfway through this intro course. On the, well, we'll see, on the Michael. Subjects. I I don't know what's the path going to be for us. I know I'm not going to quant trading. <laughs> I, I know I'm not good enough. I never say no. Never say no. <laughs> okay, well, sometimes you can't say no. You know, you you, you, you just know it's not for you. It's, you're just not good enough. Uh, it's it's really funny. This is great. I mean, I mean, um, thanks so much for for t talking so much about. Uh, quant finance with me about this. It was a good conversation with uh, Mr. Zuckerman. You enjoyed it? Yeah. No, I learned a ton. Thank you for having me. This was the first time in the studio doing doing podcast interview, huh? Yeah. This, this is great. Hopefully we first can time. hopefully we can do more to see uh, to our listeners. Michael and I were supposed to be 
in Boston in, in two days. If, if it weren't for the coronavirus, <laughs> we were going to Boston to interview a bunch of people in Boston. We had very amazing professors, uh, frontier uh, uh, bioethicists, um, economists, uh, researchers on all kinds of subject matters from the humanities to the arts to computer science and biology. And uh, we, we couldn't go any, there anymore because Massachusetts declared a state of emergency and with all the coronavirus thing going on. So we, we certainly wish all of our listeners stay safe. Um, thanks so much for listening, as always, and for supporting Policy Punchline. You may follow us on policypunchline.com. Um, if you would like to uh, learn more about Mr. Zuckerman's work, and his, he's written many, many books, but this most recent one, The Man Who Solved the Market, please go on Amazon to, to go get it. It's a fascinating, fascinating read. I mean, Michael and I really endorse this one. Yeah, yeah no, for, for sure. This opened my eyes a lot to this this approach, like in going into the mind of Jim Simons, this guy who really pioneered this mathematical market approach, which was very cool to see firsthand. And you'd really have to say it was it wasn't hard to understand. I mean, everybody could get it. Yeah, so no, I, he explains it in a very very clear, understand way. All the math. There's obviously a lot of math he tries to explain, but he does these very short sort of punchlines to get the general idea of how they're using this math in the market in your head, which to me was incredible. Right. Just like our podcast. It's just, yeah. It really explains things in an intuitive way. Anyways, thanks so much for joining me today, Michael. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Tiger. Awesome. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, see you next episode. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.